During my junior year at the University of Delaware, I was sitting in the office of the student newspaper, The Review, when a letter arrived from the football department. I opened it and it said, Jeff, maybe sooner than later, Tubby Raymond. Tubby Raymond was the Blue Hens football coach, a larger than life figure, a college football hall of famer, and he was clearly threatening me. Sooner than later? Sooner than later? What was he even talking about? I showed the note to my colleagues who offered shrugs and blank stares. Sooner than later? Was he coming after me? What the hell was going on? The next week, after his Tuesday afternoon press gathering, Raymond pulled me aside. You got my note, right? He asked, smiling. Yeah, I said. What did it mean? The coach laughed. Jeff, last week in your column you wrote, sooner or later Tubby Raymond's going to kill me. I'm just keeping things light, man. You got to have fun in this world. Tubby Raymond died three years ago. I treasure that note. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Eric Baffler, a 28-year-old Titans beat writer for the National Tennessee and who, just last week, wrapped his newspaper career and is off to grad school. So what does that say about the industry, about Eric, about my old stomping grounds? This is episode number 185, Let's Sling to Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. All right, well, Eric, so I was thinking, um, since it is the holiday right now, and um, I was thinking of you and I, that we are basically characters in a newspaper version of um, A Christmas Carol, where I am the ghost of Tennessee and sports writer past, (laughs) and you are a Tennessee sports writer future or present, where, okay, I came along 1994 to 1996. I viewed the Tennessean as a gateway to something bigger. I busted my ass at the Tennessean. Right. I ended up at Sports Illustrated. It was exactly what I wanted. It was a great experience. The Tennessean was a kick-ass newspaper with a thriving newsroom in a two-newspaper town with a huge holiday party, job security, everything you could possibly want. You, a young, up-and-coming, excellent sports writer for the Tennessean, you're leaving the Tennessean to go to Columbia for grad school. It's a struggling newspaper. They're no longer in the palatial office building that I was in long ago. They're in a small little office building. They've been cutting staff left and right. Are you a casualty of modern newspaper? Is that, if this is 20 years ago, are you trying to do what I did? I I think that's fair, Jeff. I I really do. Um, You know, I I often think, and, and, you know, it's it's a popular notion wishing you were born in a different era, but I I really do. I, you know, I think, you know, if it was 20 years ago, there's no way that I'm thinking of leaving. Honestly, even a year ago, I, I was not thinking of leaving the Tennessean. You know, I'm 28 years old now. Uh, I was 27 a year ago, you know, was was really enjoying the job. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm very aware at all times of sort of the crumbling nature of the industry itself around me. But, you know, I, I had no I had no plan B. I was not thinking of leaving. That was not on my radar. And uh, it's, it's funny. I've, I've been very you know, introspective the past few days as, as I've kind of left the Tennessean and, and thought about my journey the past few years just to get to this point. And I've kind of thought, you know, where, where was the point where it happened, where it, the, the switch kind of flipped in my mind that I wanted to leave. And I, I do think it was, you know, not a concrete moment. It was more a gradual thing. But really what got me thinking, you know, about leaving was 
there was a, a period in April, May, and June earlier this year where everybody, all employees of, of USA Today, of Gannett, uh, had to be furloughed for one week a month. And that was from April through June. So three weeks off, you know, was not allowed to even touch my phone, couldn't, you know, check my work email, couldn't do anything Titans. And, you know, I, I've been employed my entire adult life since college, which I've been fortunate to do, but I've, I've never had a stretch like that in my life where, you know, I had a week totally off to unplug. And I think it was then where, you know, my mind, it wasn't like a conscious thing, but my mind kind of just drifted toward thinking about what else was out there and you know, what, what might make me happy because me leaving was, was really a product of the opportunity in front of me more than anything else. I think, you know, with Columbia, I'm going there for sports management. I think the opportunities there, the networking chances, the, the chances to learn all of that to me was the biggest thing with deciding to leave that, that above everything else was, was the impetus. But of course there's, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, I, I wasn't fully content with journalism, with the job itself. And, and it really boiled down to overworked, underpaid, always stressed, no job stability, all of that. And those thoughts boiled into something more when I had, you know, nothing but time on my hands for the first time in my career. And it was this gradual thing. And, you know, I, I kind of slowly started like looking on LinkedIn for for jobs that might translate well as far as skill set goes. Had zero luck with that. You know, I would call a success getting a rejection email. At that point, there were just jobs, you know, whether with uh, an agency or a league, you know, marketing, communications, that sort of thing. And I was just having no luck there. So I was exploring my options. And I never really thought this time last year that this is where I would be. But I think casualty of, of the era of, of newspapers, of journalism is, you know, it's a fair way to put it. Is it a stupid goal for someone to come out of college and decide, I want to be a beat writer for a newspaper for whatever team? Is that a dumb goal in 2020? No, I, I don't think it is. And it's, it's funny because just sort of coincidentally, I've had kind of out of the blue, a couple of young writers reach out to me recently. There, there's been like three in the past month and it, it usually gets to halfway in the conversation where I'm like, look, I, I got to, you know, in full disclosure, I'm leaving, but I don't want to do anything to dissuade young writers. That That's a hundred percent not what I want to do. I think if you have a dream, these jobs are still out there. Somebody's going to replace me. And I've had a bunch of people reach out to me about the Titans job and, and what it entails at at the Tennessean, you know, everything with Gannett. And, and I've tried to answer those questions as best I can and as honestly as I can. You know, I, I think you just have to know going in that it's not e exactly what it seems on the surface. It's certainly not what it was probably 20 years ago when, you know, when the business was just uh, in, in a much better state. You know, I, I thought, you know, maybe I could do this for a few more years. My thinking was just that if, if I'm going to get to the point where, you know, enough is enough and, and the job stability issue and all the sort of shortcomings of, of the industry of the job became too much, why not just get in front of it now? I'm still young. It's still an appropriate time for a career change. But I, I would never try and dissuade, you know, a young writer who, who's going for it because I, I think it's going to be really hard to dissuade somebody who's, whose dream it is. Like even if I were to go back to the 21, 22-year-old version of myself today as the 28-year-old version and try and convince myself not to not to go for it, you know, I, I was way too, I had people tell me that and I still went for it. You know, I wouldn't want to do that. And, and also I, I think that the skill set that you acquire, you know, in, in the journey to become you know, an NFL beat writer, uh, and, and then the skill set you acquire while you're doing that job. I, I, I think, I hope, you know, that skill set translates to a lot of other jobs if, you know, a career pivot is something that they would want to do. So I personally would, would never try and dissuade somebody from that. I know you're going to Columbia to get a master in sports management. What do you want to do? That's, that's the question. And, you know, right now I, I 
think I wrote in my statement of purpose that, you know, I want to leverage my career in sports media so that I've got a skill set that that allows me to hit the ground running or I've, I've got a job that, you know, the skill set is, is applicable to. So, you know, I, I've said sports marketing, um, communication, something in, in social initiatives for, for a league. Uh, the, the whole thing is that I'm, I'm wide open at this point and, you know, I've, I've got a lot to learn which is why I'm going to Columbia. There's, there's a lot of doors that, you know, I, I think I don't even know exist right now. You know, so I'm going there totally open-minded. I think that the focus is probably going to be marketing geared, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure. So just being blunt and since you're leaving, maybe it's not so mean. When I, when I talk to people I knew back in Nashville about the Tennessean now, and I say, what do you think of the Tennessean? It's a rag, blah, blah, blah. Right. When I worked for the paper, Gannett had moved in and you could see the impact of Gannett, you know, Nutcraft, 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 and a lot more boxes. And right. you didn't want to jump as many stories, blah, blah, blah. But you could start to see it. But I always like, I always felt, all right, this is a good newspaper. This is a good newspaper. And that mattered to me. And I wonder when you were writing for the Tennessee, and maybe you disagree with those people. Like, did you feel like I'm writing for a good newspaper or in modern times, does it not really matter because a newspaper isn't a newspaper in the traditional sense where you sit down and you open something up? Yeah, you know, I think that's true. Um, when it comes to the physical newspaper, like the newspaper itself, you know, it, it's it's hard because our emphasis, you know, shifted almost completely away from that. Like even even on game days, um, our deadlines, you know, we're in, we're in in the central time zone. Our deadlines would be like four forty five p.m. So, you know, if, if it's a if it's a uh, you know a noon kickoff, we can we can fit that in, but like a three o'clock, three twenty-five kickoff, you know, normally that that's stretching it. And, you know, it, it, it is kind of ridiculous for an afternoon game, not to get in the paper the next day for, for an NFL team, you know, for the paper of record in a major city. So, you know, in that regard, like I, I understand the criticism and, you know, I totally get it, but you know, I, I think it's easy to, to sort of have that criticism from afar, from outside, um, you know, but I, I see the work that the journalists are doing, you know, not only myself, but I think we, we do have a really talented staff. You know, a, a lot of it boils down to the, the Gannett approach, which is a, a lot of uh, sort of punchy headlines and, and um, trending stories. We're, we're all about trending stories that in some respects, especially honestly, for my job takes away from, you know, some of the enterprise opportunities. And a lot of the stories that I like to write, a lot of the stories that I got into it in the first place for. I hate Gannett. I hated Gannett when I was there. I hate Gannett now. I think Gannett has been poisonous to newspapers, but I haven't worked for Gannett in 20 years. How do you feel about Gannett? Yeah, I, I don't disagree. <laughs> um, I, I don't disagree. I think, you know, there there's like a boilerplate way of doing it. And, you know, it, it just, it, it's, it, I, I can just tell that it's not the newspaper that it was when, when you guys were around, when you guys were, you know, in your heyday. Um, and, and there's, there's frustrations with that. Um, again, that, that to me, like I wanted that to be secondary to, to why I was leaving. I wanted it to be about the opportunity in front of me and not, you know, not my frustrations with Gannett, but, but yeah, man, it, you know, it, it was frustrating often. Um, you know, something that, that, that always bothered me was that like, I, I was a, uh, an hourly employee. Like I had to really? put in my hours. Yeah. I had to put in my hours um, as an NFL beat writer. I had to put in, you know, and, and there's some days where I'm like up at like 2 a.m., working on a story that, you know, I just randomly got inspiration on. And that, that always kind of felt like a slap in the face because, you know, it's, it's not a 40 hour week job where I'm working nine to five. Wait, you I have know, a question. I, so you take this job, you're hired by the Tennessean. Right. Cause I literally remember getting my letter from the Tennessean. I was a senior at the university of Delaware and they sent me a letter and they said, your salary will be $26,000 a year. I remember literally seeing the number $26,000 a year. <laughs> 
Great. That's awesome. You know, for them, that was amazing. You never, from the very beginning, you were an hourly employee. Yeah. I'm, I'm hourly. Uh, you know, so, so there are, you know, chances for, for overtime, but you know, I guess it's kind of an unwritten rule of, of sports journalism that, you know, you work, you know, way more than, than 40 hours a week, especially on an NFL beat. Like, you know, it's either I put in more overtime to the point where, you know, editors say dial, dial it back. And then, you know, I fall behind my competition because, you know, the job is not a 40, 40 hour a week job. So it's, it's kind of a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situation. And, and you know, it's, it's stuff like that, that that always did rub me the wrong way. It's counterintuitive to journalism. I mean, journalism is I'm going to freaking bust ass to beat this guy and that guy and that woman and this woman. And I'm going to work my ass off and put in as much as I like. That's what journalism actually is. It's it's twenty four seven, especially in NFL beat where it's not, you know, this this beat the the Titans beat for the Tennessee and as as few as, I think like four years ago it was a two man job, um, you know now it's a one man job. It was me and there's been a lot of turnover. Uh, I always used to joke that I've I've gone through a bunch of probably three different sports directors in, in two and a half years. I I would always joke to people here that I felt like Marcus Mariota was a different offensive coordinator every single year. Uh, and just trying to get that continuity back was difficult. So there was a lot of turnover. And yeah, it's it's totally counterintuitive to what journalism is. This is a job that demanded my attention all the time, uh, which which takes a toll. And, you know, that's okay. Like, I'm, I'm willing to, to work hard and, and just totally bust my butt. That's what I've been doing. You know, that's all I know how to do since I left college. And I'm happy to do that. And, you know, when I was younger, a little younger than I was now, I was happy to do that you know, no matter what they were paying me, no matter what, I was just happy to get the opportunity. But, you know, it gets to a point where it's got to be, you've got to feel like you're, you're valued for what you are. And at, at the end of my stint here, that had kind of run its course. You sound like the world's oldest 28-year-old journalist. <laughs> I think I've matured a lot, Jeff, in the past year. Again, man, I was, I was going to die on this journalism hill this time last year. I was definitely going to go down with the ship. And I don't know, I, I just, I, I started to think about, you know, the 38 year old version of myself, 48 year old version. And like, I hope I'm going to be thanking my, myself, you know, five years from now for, for making this decision. Uh, and when you texted me, you, you used the word gutsy for, for leaving. And I think, I think that's true. I think it's, it's a risk to leave, you know, not a lot of jobs are safe in journalism, but I think this, the job I had was, was relatively safe, but I, I think, you know, in a lot of respects, it would be riskier to, to stay with it, you know, just given the state of, of journalism, the state of things. And, you know, I think this opportunity in the long run, hopefully, I hope, offers more stability. I'll say two things. Number one, when I was at Sports Illustrated, I was there for about six years. SI had always been my dream, dream job. Right. And I decided to leave while I was still enjoying it because I just didn't want to be one of those guys who's clinging on to it and they're cutting people. And all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, making whatever amount of money and they get rid of you and you can't, you're not going to meet, you're not going to be that anywhere else. And I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty good friends with a former colleague of mine at the Tennessean name. I don't know if you worked with Mo Patton or if he was gone when you got there. I didn't work with him, but, but I, I know him. Yeah. I mean, he's a great guy and he was, you know, Tennessean, excellent, worked there for years, loyal soldier, blah, blah, blah. Sure. And one day you're gone and you find yourself 50, whatever years old with two kids in college. And to me, like, it just makes sense if you're someone like yourself and you're 28 and you're just not, you're just starting to question it. It's always better to get out a little ahead than way behind. Yeah. I think, I think that was my thinking. I, I, I went back and forth on the decision for a while, Jeff. Um, first of all, I, I didn't think I was going to get into Columbia and I think 
there was like a difference between like applying and thinking it would be a no brainer type decision if I got in versus getting in and having to pull the trigger on leaving. It was, it was much more of a mental sort of obstacle for me to work through. I think that was part of it was, was trying to get ahead of the situation. And I, I, again, I I think I could have stayed with it for a while longer. I think my end goal was probably to get back to New York uh, to write for a paper there. I'm from New York. My family's all there, you know, so Columbia was, was a path back home. That was important, but you know, I, I just never, I didn't want to stick with it because I, I thought I was going to be leaving at some point, you know, in the not so distant future. And my thinking was, let me let me get a head start if I can. You know, when, when I got accepted into Columbia, it, it felt like the right time. You know, I think the hardest part is, is leaving a lot of the people behind, my, my colleagues, the people on the beat that, you know, I, I really got to know well. That was the hardest part. And it was, it was harder than I initially thought. But, you know, as far as leaving the, the job itself in sports journalism, um, you know, I I really, I feel light as a feather right now. I, I don't want to uh, undersell how much I really loved it and, you know, I put into it, but there's certainly a liberating feeling about it. I can't get past the hourly thing. I mean, we're furloughing you for a week, meaning for that week, you make no money. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we were allowed to uh, apply for unemployment, which that sucked too, because that was like uh, half an hour of trying to get through that system. And you didn't know if it worked in the end, end and uh, had to go back and do that a few times before I think it went through. But yeah, so, so when I was furloughed, didn't get paid and uh, wasn't allowed to touch my work phone. That's crazy. Literally could not touch your work phone. Couldn't touch my work phone, couldn't open my laptop. And I didn't have to do it myself. I don't even remember what I did. I, I just remember, you know, that being probably the period where, you know, my, I guess my mind just started to wander a little bit. When you're on a furlough or when you're being told you're on a furlough, is it, do you feel like there's an unspoken understanding whoever the editor or whoever it is who's telling you, is there an unspoken, I know this is bullshit, but this is what it is? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I, I've, I've got a, just a ton of respect for, for the people that I worked for directly, the editors, and they were furloughed too, you know, so they were, they were part of it. Um, you know, they were getting the brunt of, of, of all of that as well. So yeah, I, I do definitely think that there was that, that understanding between us and, you know, it, it's just, uh, you know, that, that's Gannett, that's, that goes all the way up. So I think there was that understanding there. And, uh, you know, I, I think there was a feeling that we were in this together for sure. Um, I don't think I've ever asked anyone this. How'd you quit and how was it received? Uh, I was really worried about that. Uh, it was received really well, way better than I thought it was going to be received. And honestly, I think, uh, so I, I haven't brought this up, but I, I took a buyout. Uh, I took a voluntary buyout and the timing with that was purely coincidental so I got my acceptance letter from Columbia probably early October. And then it was like within eight hours, I kind of got wind that Gannett was going to be offering voluntary buyouts. And I don't really put a whole lot of stock in, in signs or anything like that, but it felt, it felt right. So I, I had every intention of staying through this Titan season, but in accepting the voluntary buyout, uh, my last day was December 1. So that, that put that into effect. But uh, you know, I, I had spoken with an editor about grad school before, you know, so I, I don't think it came as a surprise. And I kind of laid the foundation that way, you know, months before, uh, you know, we had a long conversation and it truly went way better than than I had expected. I thought, you know, there might be, you know, any any amount of pushback uh, as far as them trying to talk me out of it, them trying to say, you know, you're still young. I, I don't know what they might have said, but but there was none of it. There was only respect with with the decision and understanding, which is way better than I could have hoped for, because the, the person I told the people I was telling were going to be directly impacted and are directly impacted right now by the decision because, you know, now then now they kind of have to pick up the slack with that having me 
shoveling content every day, they kind of have to find a way to uh, to make all of that up. So it was it was received just better than I could have imagined. Wait, I'm interested in something. You've covered you covered the Titans. This may sound weird. You tell any of the player, are you like, hey, Derek Henry, see you later. Is good covering you? Or are they like, could, were they give two shits? Uh, probably not. Actually, I, you know, I think it's different, you know, in, in the COVID era because, you know, we haven't been in the locker room all year. It's it's all through Zoom. Everything feels much less personal right now. But, you know, I had I had Kevin Byard, you know, quote tweet my my goodbye tweet, you know, saying, good luck, brother. And, and you know, him and I have had a good rapport and, and he's a really, really good dude. So, you know, that was cool. But other than that, you know, I had the, the, the GM text me, him, him and I have a good rapport and, and, you know, some members of the front office and all that. But as far as the players, that was it. It was, it was Bayard and, and that was it. But I, I do think like maybe, maybe it would have been different if, uh, you know, the locker room was open and we were seeing these guys every single day. We, we don't even turn on our cameras for for Zoom conference calls with the players. So it, it's been totally, you know, essentially anonymous uh, as far as their side of things all season. Is it miserable? Is covering an NFL season uh, via Zoom and, you know, the distancing of it all, is it, is it as miserable as it seems or is it okay? Uh, th- there are some perks. Like one perk right off the bat is that, uh, like let's say I was, I was on the road for an away game. Uh, that game is, you know, let's say 1 o'clock. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to fly out that night on a Sunday night in case the game, you know, goes late or whatever or is delayed or something like that. So the, the press conference the following day is, is generally like 11 a.m. or something. So we have to catch the next flight out, uh, the first flight out uh, on Monday morning. So, you know, if it was like a Sunday night game, we're pulling an all nighter and, and catching like a 6 a.m. flight back with virtual meetings, uh, virtual conference calls. You know, I, I could catch up a, a late flight out Monday and just stay in the hotel room and, and, and do that call. So, so that's a perk. Other than that, I, I think it is to some degree miserable just because you don't have those sort of just casual conversations in the locker room where, you know, the best stories come from. And uh, it, it just all felt really, really distant. You were still going to away games? Yeah, I was actually still going to away games, which was cool. Um, and I honestly didn't think there was going to be much of a perk to, to that just because I thought we were going to be you know, in the press box, we would go from the hotel to the press box and from the press box home and, and that would be it. But, you know, we were allowed down to the, f- the first row of the stands where we were kind of on the field and with no fans in the stands, it kind of felt like we were on the sidelines anyway. So that that was that was interesting. And I was grateful that they were sending me, you know, because there was only including myself, like three or four regular beat writers that were traveling to game. So so that was that was beneficial. But again, you know, everything was still via Zoom everything still kind of felt distant. Uh, and it was just a, a really weird year for that. And it made, you know, for sure, it, it made covering the team much more difficult. I was reading a little bit about your background and you're from New York and you went to SUNY Binghamton, which is a pretty, I mean, I went to Delaware. It's relatively equivalent journalism programs and blah, 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 blah. And I'm sure you were something of a sports geek growing up. Like you were really into sports. And, you know, when I was about your age, I would say when I was late twenties, I started losing my zest for sports where I just didn't have the same love and where friends would be like, holy shit, you got to, you get to interview Derek Jeter. And I'd be like, eh, you know, like, and I wonder for you, the whole like, oh my God, you get to see Derek Henry or blah, 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 Ryan Tannehill. Or, do you still have that zest or did it lose something in, in doing this job? No, I, I've, I've lost it. Uh, it. It doesn't face me anymore at all. Uh, I remember my first like real moment like that was I was a uh, associate reporter for MLB.com in 2014. I had an internship with them right after school. And I was covering the Phillies and I walked into the Phillies clubhouse for the first time. And, and that was a true, totally dumbstruck moment for me. 
ever since then it's it's kind of been it's it's leveled out to the point where it it really doesn't doesn't do much for me and i think i think if you get into that into this for for that reason uh i really do think that's the wrong reason because i i think that fades to a certain degree and uh i I don't think i'm that dissimilar i think i was definitely a a big sports geek growing up but you know i've I've got other interests other than that and you know i know i'm going for sports management because i feel like that's that's something new but also you know not not that different um but it, it, you know, it could lead to something else and I'm not totally resigned to staying in, within sports. And, you know, I, I think that part of it for me, you know, that didn't compel me to stay. It certainly didn't compel me to get into it in the first place. And um, I think as the years have gone on, that that sense of awe has, has certainly waned to the point where, you know, it just doesn't phase me right now. Before we continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son, Emmett who only speaks in snorts, grunts, and gibberish. Okay. Right? So you're tired of the pandemic. Everyone should wear a mask. You think Carson Wentz is done and you want me to go to 503-sports.com, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, and buy you a bunch of throwback sports t-shirts and hats? Your farts burn passionately like the breath of a leather-clad bicycle. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, 503 Sports has the best jerseys around. I misunderstood. That, that was the worst ad. You have had the uh, the opportunity to cover one of the biggest stars and probably the best running back, arguably the best running back in the NFL uh, for a couple of years now, Derrick Henry. When you have a guy who's a star and, you know, people come around, ESPN will come or the Athletic will come or whoever will come and they all want to write about Derrick Henry. Is there a way you can cover him and make it interesting week after week? You know, whatever, he runs for 120 yards and he runs for 130, then he runs for 89. Is there a way to keep it fresh when you're writing about the same guy week after week and he's your go-to player? It's it's really hard, Jeff. It it is, especially when, you know, it's the same guy every single week. There's ways to do it where, you know, maybe you find somebody in his background or you compare him to somebody or you get somebody to say something about him where it's interesting. But especially this year when, you know, we're all on the Zoom call and, and we don't have those moments where, you know, we're in the locker room and, and it's something off to the side. It's tough, man. It's it's really tough to sort of differentiate yourself from from the pack. And I think this year especially, it was it was really difficult to do that. But it's a challenge with a star. And to me, I, th- I think you kind of have to approach it like um, you have to sort of dig for, for something if, if you're going to differentiate yourself. And, and so, you know, I, I think Derek Henry is a guy that, that has, you know, interesting background coming from Florida. And, and, you know, there's things to tap into there. But I, I always found that hard was sort of finding a way to get around the competition and, and find something unique. And, um, you know, with a guy like Derrick Henry, he's, he's sort of come around this year as far as how he is in interviews. He seems much more receptive. But last year, the year before that, my first year on the beat, I would say he was uh, very much mood-based as, as far as what we got from him. It, it kind of really felt like with the local media, he, he didn't really want a whole lot to do with us, which, you know, kind of sucks when, when he's the star and he's the guy that you go to, you know, every Wednesday. Does that piss you off as a writer? Yeah, it kind of does. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to spread the word about him. It's not like we're writing bad stuff. He's the star. He's the guy that's doing things well. And, you know, it would, it would always be like head scratching for him to be in a bad mood after like running for 200 yards. Like, why are you so standoffish after a performance like that? We're not going to, you know, we're not here to critique that performance. So it was frustrating. And it was also like, I, I don't get it. I don't get why 
you know, this is your approach when, when we're here to write good stuff about you. So, you know, it's frustrating. I, I would say he was probably the one guy that was, that was like that in my experience. I mean, there, there were some other guys that weren't great, but, but he was kind of the, the one guy that, especially the first couple of years that I was on the beat, was more mood-based. If you caught him on a good day, he might have a good quote or two. But for the most part, you know, there were some days where like I wasn't even, I was half paying attention to what he was saying in the locker room, half paying attention to, you know, who else was there and who else I could run to right after the Henry interview. It seems like one of the tough things about being an NFL beat writer is, all right, so like Derek Henry, not a great quote. Maybe Ryan Tannehill, not a great quote. I don't know if he is or not. Is he, is he decent or? Depends on the subject. Uh, so he, he uh, when it came to like the Black Lives Matter stuff, he, he was really outspoken and really insightful, really, um, you know, he, he wrote stories with, with his quotes, uh, like they stole headlines. Other than that, he's been, um, you know, honestly, pretty, pretty cliche and, and, and doesn't give a whole lot, but he's, he's not bad. I wouldn't put him, you know, in the Henry category for sure. If you're a beat writer for the Tennessean and your best, you know, your best guys in that locker room are a left tackle, the free safety and the nickel guy. And they're your best guys. They're your best quotes. They're your money quotes. They always give their insightful, blah, 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 blah. Is a lame Derrick Henry insight more important in your standard Tennessean Titan story than a insightful quote from the nickelback? That's a good question. I, I would say usually it's, it's circumstantial. Uh, I mean, if, if you ask me, I would a hundred times rather go to the guy that, that gave the good quote over, over Henry, I, I guess it would depend if I was actually writing about Henry. And, you know, it's, it's funny because there's always a scrum around his locker. And again, this is, this is last year, the year before, not this year, because everything's virtual this year. But, you know, there would be times where, you know, I'm in the middle of a really good interview where I kind of have to run over to Henry begrudgingly because on the off chance, it is a good day for him and he's saying something, I got to be there for it. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's situational. But if you ask me if, if, if it's about telling a good story, I'd, I'd rather go to the guy that, that gave me some insight. I feel like you're like the guy who um, you've seen behind the curtain. You seem like you've seen behind the curtain. <laughs> kind of had enough a little bit. This seems like a good time for you to be, to be leaving. Yeah. You know, I, I, I didn't get into it, Jeff, for, you know, anything as it relates to being in the locker room or, or even being there, you know, in the press box. Although that, I think being in the press box and, you know, especially like walking back to my car after a game, that that to me was always a really cool moment where I, I kind of just for, you know, a second had a chance to take a breath and, and sort of reflect on the day and everything I did. That moment to me is, is something I'm going to miss. But uh, yeah, man, I, I got into it because I like to write. Like I in, in college, I wanted to be a screenwriter. I didn't really see a path to like a full time job doing that. But that's where like I I learn to tell stories and, and I was totally self-taught. I didn't take a screenwriting course or, or do anything. I just, I liked movies. I wanted to write. And that's kind of how I started. And, you know, I, I got involved in journalism because, you know, I was away from the New York City area. I wanted to write about Carmelo Anthony coming to the Knicks in, in uh, 2010. And, and so I kind of got roped in that way. But, you know, for me, the job itself has always been the biggest appeal is, is the chance to storytell, the chance to write. And I'm walking away from you know, from a lot of it, but, you know, in a lot of ways, this is kind of freeing as far as, you know, what I'm writing about. And, you know, I, I hope to do some freelancing in New York when uh, I get back there. If, you know, if, if freelancing is a thing, you know, amid COVID, I, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I've already reached out to, to a bunch of contacts there for, for hopefully some opportunities. And, you know, I haven't even thought about screenwriting really since college because I haven't had a second to, to do that, but maybe I get back into that. I, I just think it's, it's really freeing. 
And I don't think you're wrong. I think, you know, the appeal of, of being in the locker room and, and talking to Derrick Henry, that doesn't really do it for me, you know, like it did when I was in the Phillies locker room. I think when that fades, uh, I don't know if that's that's the telltale sign to, to leave, but it's certainly uh, gotten to a point where, where it doesn't really um, impact me. There came a point where I was like, you're no better than I am. Why are you blowing me off? Like that was actually, <laughs> yeah. there really was. There was a point where I was like, you're no better than I am. Why are you, your skill hitting a fastball is not that much more valuable than my skill putting together a paragraph. You come to realize that, that they're just like you. They're, they're not these gods walking around. They're, they're just like you. They just, you know, make a lot more money than you do and they, and they play sports, but you know, why, why be entitled about that? And a lot of players in the Titans locker room were, were not that way. And, and even Derek Henry, I don't think, I just don't think he was, all that comfortable. Like, I don't want to, you know, say he was entitled or anything like that. I, I don't know how comfortable he was in those types of settings. And to his credit, I think this year he's, he's gotten better with it. Yeah. You're a little young for this, but I do always ask every journalist this. Did you have an asshole moment that stands out from your career as a writer? Well, Mike Vrabel got, got mad at me a couple of times last year. He, uh, I, I don't even remember what I wrote. It was something like he, he made what was a boneheaded decision late in a game. I wrote that. And then the day after press conference, he said something like, uh, you know, we all make mistakes, right, Eric? And, uh, you know, he looked right at me and uh, was like, yeah, I, I wrote that. And, you know, I'll stand by it because that, that's what happened. To my knowledge, that's that's one of the few times he's ever called out somebody straight like that. He also yelled me off the field at one point because uh, they've got three fields at the Titans team facility. The third field is reserved for guys that are injured, that are rehabbing, and that's that's kind of off limits when it comes to you know filming, taking notes, reporting. And so I, I think I had just gone to practice, and I was trying to to video a kicker who was healthy, who just happened to be on the third field. And Vrabel saw it, and he was screaming at me. And uh, there was a uh, there was a tornado here in Nashville uh, a few months ago, and it, between that and the Vrabel experience, top two frightening experiences that I've had in Nashville were, were those two, the tornado that almost hit my apartment and Vrabel screaming me off the field. Wow. It was that scary. The tornado was, was terrifying too. We were really close to that. That was in March, March of, of this year. And our apartment was as close to being hit as, uh, as it could have been without actually being hit. We had tornado warnings when I was there, but I never actually was in one. Did you lie on the floor? Like, what do you do? I mean, I'm a New Yorker, so I'm just, I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not ready for that type of natural disaster. So I'm super paranoid about them whenever, you know, it's a thing, there's a potential tornado. I'm like, you know, I've got both my laptops open. I'm, I'm checking my phone. And so this one hit like around 1am. So my girlfriend was sleeping and, you know, I got the alert that there's a tornado warning. And then I looked out my window and I'm, I'm not sure that I saw it, but I, I saw the, the blue lights from the transformers going and I'm still really bummed to this day that the, uh, the journalist in me didn't like think to start videoing but it was like a true scare for my life type of situation. So, you know, I screamed to my girlfriend, Tornado. She woke up. We're on the third floor of an apartment building, which is the top floor. She wanted to hide in the bathroom. I said, no, we're going to the bottom of the stairwell. So I, I you know, picked up the, the dog. We sprinted to the bottom of the stairwell. And 100% scariest experience of my life. The building was shaking. Fire alarm went off. And I, I think we would have made it. Uh, if it hit the building because, you know, I was paying attention, but I, I don't know if we might not have, I don't know. Let me ask you a final question. I have in front of me your farewell column from the pipe dream Binghamton student newspaper. First of all, you look about six years old in this picture. <laughs> I know, man. Your lead was in hindsight, my pursuits during my stint at Binghamton university would strongly indicate that I'm a masochist. I ambled on in as a doe eyed freshman and made setting the bar way too high a reoccurring theme. 
I underestimated how agonizingly slow things take to happen, especially the things you really want. I chase girls, dreams, and a lucrative career, and I'm walking out of here alone, more of a realist and as an English major. Hindsight is a son of a bitch. If you can go back and you're, you know, Eric of 2014, baby-faced, doe-eyed Eric of 2014, do you go differently than the past six years? Number one, I've actively avoided reading that column ever since. And, and my girlfriend, you know, will bring it up pretty frequently just because it, it makes me cringe so hard. But uh, no, I don't think I would do anything different. Like I, I've got regrets. You know, I'm, I'm not, not going to say that I don't have any regrets, you know, here and there, but I was hell bent on this path for myself. And, you know, in, in 2016, I, I took a job in Alabama covering high school sports for, from Newsday. And that was a situation where like, you know, I just stuffed as much into my Mazda three and, and drove down to Opelika, Alabama. I, I didn't know how to pronounce Opelika my first few days in town, you know, and I was covering high school sports. I was, I was that committed to it. And I do feel like not everybody gets to where I got by the time I was 26. I was the Titans beat writer for the Tennessee and by the time I was 26 years old. So I, I think I was fortunate with, you know, just being lucky with timing, uh, you know, so it's, I, I can't go back and say like, I would do something different, even though here I am at 28 looking to, to pivot. And a lot of that also is like, you know, the people I've met, the, the skill set that I've, I've kind of acquired, I think, I think all of that is, is going to pay off in the future. I, you know, I really think that. So, you know, and, and, and even more than that, the experience itself, like I was, I was very much in a New York bubble before, you know, I came down to the South. I think, you know, through this job, I've seen like half the country. I got to go to London. I've met a lot of really cool people. So it, as far as like regrets about the, the path itself, I, I don't regret that at all. And, you know, even even though, you know, I'm, I'm looking for something different now, I, I just don't think that uh, I would go back and, and change anything. And, and, you know, to go back to an earlier point, even even if I wanted to, even if I could talk to my younger version, the younger version of myself, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure there was just no convincing me that this wasn't, you know, my future or the path I should be on. Well, listen, Eric, uh, 20 years from now, you need to host a podcast and find the Tennessean, if the, hopefully the Tennessean exists in some form, <laughs> find the young punk out of New York who's writing for the newspaper and have him on your podcast. We'll continue this tradition every 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you doing this, man. I, I, uh, I wish you luck. And I, as I said in the text, I, I commend you. I do think it's a gutsy decision and I think it sounds like the right one. And I, uh, I commend you for doing it. So uh, thanks for being on here. Thanks, man. It was it was really a thrill. Uh, big fan of the podcast and of, of your writing. So this was a thrill. I want to thank today's guest, Eric Backrack, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Eric on Twitter at Eric Backrack and read his work. Well, nowhere. It's over. Music is by the Dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.